Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain with your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. One, AJ23. Welcome to the podcast where we, in the words of Walter Benjamin, regard it as our task to brush history against the grain. I am one of your hosts, Josh Weiner, and not with me is my co-host Chris Padgett. I'm doing this solo today. Uh, for long-time listeners, hopefully you're not too shocked. Uh, for first-time listeners, you'll see what's going on in a second. Uh, this is our episode from the American Historical Association annual conference in Philadelphia. Um, so I'm just doing this quick intro to kind of set things up, and then you'll hear the recording from that panel. I'll just say now that the, the audio is probably not as great as I would have hoped. There are some quieter moments. There's some background uh, hum, we'll just say, uh, over a lot of it, but it definitely is listenable. Hopefully um, you will enjoy it, despite not sounding as crisp and clear as you're used to on the podcast. And I'll just say, you know, briefly that it was a really fun time. We thought the panel went really well. Hopefully you guys will agree with me when you listening, listen to it. And I do want to thank our panelists, those who took part with us, who were generous with their time and with their intellectual capacities at this time of year. And so a real thanks to, to Elise Robeson, who came out from DC. Elise has been on the podcast before. You can go back and listen to her episodes earlier in the podcast history. And then Ed Hashima, also a, f- a former guest and colleague at American River College, who uh, got to join us and uh, had so much important stuff to say. And then lastly, we had from Sacramento State University, uh, Mike Van, who uh, was uh, just such a, such a great presence on the panel and, and really brought some cool ideas into the discussion. And lastly, I would just want to shout out, since he's not here uh, recording right now, my co-host Chris Paget. Um, in in some ways, the history of this podcast is the history of of Chris developing his ideas about the um, American History Survey, the U.S. History Survey. Our very first episode was focused on you know his increasing sense that that the U.S. History Survey is is not redeemable. And then over the next you know sixty episodes, he kind of developed that idea further and further. He got involved in in writing his uh, his manuscript, which kind of tackles the the problems of, of U.S. history and, and the narrative of U.S. history. And, you know, because I've been along that whole ride, I think I've become a little bit, uh, you know, I've become so accustomed to that argument. But I really, you know, do want to stress that, especially in this context of, you know, being at the American Historical Association and, and doing this panel, um, it should not be um, understated how how radical that idea is and how how developed his ideas have become and you know because I've listened to it and we've talked about it so often I, I, I think I just came to think of it as oh it's a perfectly sensible idea and I totally agree with him but it was really cool seeing his uh, you know his uh, expression his articulation of that idea to this new audience um, in this new context and 
uh, it's just been such a such a joy to um, kind of watch him develop his ideas in such a, a brilliant fashion. And uh, we should all be looking forward to his book when it comes out. Uh, I'm going to be pushing for you know the largest possible audience for that book. So uh, congrats, my friend. It was uh, awesome doing it with you. It was amazing doing this the podcast live as well. So I don't know if there's many venues that would would you know uh, take us in to do a, an hour and a half podcast about the about the survey, but you know this was was the perfect context for that. And I hope you all enjoy listening. Uh, for first time listeners, our archives are available on all your podcast platforms. So please give us give, give older episodes a listen. For people who've been with us a while, this was a cool moment, a kind of culmination of sorts of this you know three year process of doing the podcast we will you know most likely record another podcast in the next few weeks in which we just kind of reflect on you know the whole experience of going to the aha um talk about me maybe one of the panels that we went to that we were not uh hosting and so look forward to that but but otherwise here we are from the belly of the beast philadelphia in the aha 23 hope you enjoy All right, welcome to the conference panel in which we, in the words of Walter Benjamin, regarded as our task to brush history against the grain. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Weiner. With me as always, my co-host, Chris Paget. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Josh. It's great to be in Philadelphia for the uh, annual meeting of the American Historical Association. It's been only about 25 years since I've been to one of these, and it's uh, pretty similar to I remember, actually. More gray in my beard. I've been employed more or less most of the time since I first came to the AHA. Let's uh, introduce our panel here. Um, I'll start with you. This is Chris Padgett. Uh, Chris is my longtime colleague at American River College. Um, We started the History Against the Grain podcast in March 2020. Uh, Nothing important going on at that point, but uh, we suddenly had a lot of time on our hands in March 2020. So we started the podcast. Uh, He received his BA at the University of Pacific his MA and his PhD from the University of California, Davis. He taught for five years at Weber State in Utah and then joined American River College in 1998. He is a recovering Americanist, uh, but continues to teach U.S. history as well as the, U- as the uh, World History Survey. He's currently working on a book manuscript entitled The Story We Tell Ourselves, Black Lives and the Creation of U.S. History. Next to him is Michael Van. Michael is also teach, a teacher in, uh, uh, sorry, a professor in Sacramento. He is at Sacramento State University, where he has been since 2005. He received his BA, MA, and PhD from the University of California, Santa Cruz. As I joked earlier, he got a discount uh, for doing them all at the same place. Uh, he was hired to teach the World History Survey and also teaches Southeast Asian history. He's the author of The Great Hanoi Rat Hunt, um, which is a uh, graphic history uh, from Oxford University Press. He's also the host of the Great Books podcast. And if you have any problems with us, he is a fourth degree black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. So be careful. And I'm about to attack you now because this is the New Books in History podcast. New Books in History podcast. All right. Thank you. Some of them are really great. <laughs> yeah. 
No, but not all. Not all, all right. Them. They're more new than great. Got it. Let me introduce my uh, podcasting partner, Josh Weiner. Uh, Josh received his bachelor's in history also at the University of California, Santa Cruz. These guys were trying to figure out yesterday, I guess, if you've been Josh's TA, maybe. Yeah, despite me being much older. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Josh went on, uh, after working for Bill Graham Productions, went on to Northeastern University, where he was Pat Manning's student, earned his MA and PhD in world history. We were fortunate at American River College to hire him uh, in 2005, where he has been a full-time faculty member ever since, teaching world history and Asian history. He is currently at work on the revision of the world history textbook for the OER, or Open Educational Resources Project, which provides free textbooks uh, for students in college courses. Heading uh, down the table, uh, my colleague Ed Hashima. Edward Hashima is a, also a professor of history at American River College who earned his bachelor's degree from Stanford University, his uh, master's and PhD from UCLA. Uh, during his 20 plus years of classroom instruction, he has taught the US history surveys at American River College uh, as well as the Asian American uh, survey and the uh, a variety of honors courses uh, as well. He is an award-winning teacher at our college and former director of the college's Center for Teaching and Learning. Uh, he also would have you know he's a one-off host of this very podcast uh, who substituted for me uh, uh, and did a, a bang-up job. You may have also seen Ed uh, on Jeopardy uh, recently, competing in the College Professors Challenge, where he was a two-time show winner, I'll have you know, and was the second overall finisher in the tournament challenge. Real uh, celebrity in the building, so. Yeah, uh, otherwise we were gonna lock the door to Davies Hall upon his return, but he did his proud. Uh, and uh, I'm happy to introduce uh, the last of our uh, panelists here, Elise Robison. Uh, Elise attended the University of California, San Diego, and earned a degree in history with a minor in sociology. From ten, 2010 to 2022, she taught U.S. history, world history, government, economics, and for the AVID program as an award-winning teacher at Cupertino High School in Cupertino, California. That's where your iPhones always center the time, in case you were wondering. She has studied uh, with the Gilder Lehrman uh, Project at Yale and the National Endowment for the Humanities. She is currently a doctoral student in education at Howard University and part-time faculty for a private college prep school in Washington, D.C. Welcome, buddy. Well, thank you for being here. Um, all right, so we are going to talk about the history survey today. Um, we want to get some just basic ideas out about the survey itself. Um, these are uh, from California where we all teach, but I imagine it's fairly similar in the rest of the country as well. In California, students get U.S. history in 5th, 8th, and 11th grades, uh, and they get world history in 6th, 7th, and 10th. There are generally a few other survey options for students, but those are the primary 
surveys they receive. Those who goes, go on to community colleges like American River College um, or four-year schools mostly take some combination of U.S. history, world history, or Western Civ surveys as part of their general education requirements. Um, I can say of our college at American River College, those who take our history classes, only about 3% are history majors, which means that once they get their, under, uh, their, their general ed in history, that's often the only history class they're going to take and won't take any upper division history classes. That means for the vast majority of students, the history survey is the only way they encounter any kind of formal history instruction. So for that reason, what we want to discuss today is whether, given the ubiquity of these surveys, that the survey is the best way for students to encounter history. Now, one of the dynamics, oh, you want to, why don't you put in your... Well, I can throw in some more uh, back of the napkin uh, numbers, 60 history sections in our department typically in a semester. Uh, we have four colleges in our district, so uh, some larger, some smaller. So about 150 sections a semester survey courses in our uh, Los Rios Community College District. Uh, if you multiply that by about 116 community colleges in California, you come up with a number something like 3,364 uh, surveys offered every semester, where I suppose you could factor by 20 or 30 or maybe 40 the number of students in each one of those surveys. So as Josh says, the survey course and by statute the community colleges teach lower division courses principally as feeder for the California State University system and the University of California system so we teach only lower division courses so pretty much exclusively teach uh, survey courses and I would say given the the near uh, I think you said ubiquity, mm -hmm. uh, universality of the survey course is the essential font of history education because we could add a K-12 as well. Uh, it's remarkable, I think, in, in many respects, how little we talk about it that is, as a modality of delivering history education uh, in this country. Yeah. Well, one of the things we've been trying to do on the podcast is just look at things like this that we just take for granted and then actually try to look at the history of the stuff we do in history as opposed to just doing history. One of the dynamics we've become aware of over the last few years as we sought to improve our curriculum is that there's this real tension because we want to make our classes better, we want to make our classes uh, up to date in terms of uh, historical best practices, we'll just say. But because we are a feeder and we, you know, our students go on to UC and, and, and CSU, that means that our classes have to um, be able to what they call articulate. They have to align with the courses at those, those colleges. And that means when we want to change curriculum, it has to go through this process of articulation, which often is, uh, takes a long time. It often re uh, results in us being told we can't do it. And so the end result is that what we tend to do is leave the cur curriculum alone, the formal curriculum, and just teach our classes differently. And that's created this dynamic where what we do in the classroom is getting further and further away from what the actual curriculum looks like. Um, that doesn't seem ideal. Uh, but that's the way it works. And, you know, maybe the best example of this is that we've been trying to get rid of our, our um, Western, Western civilization surveys. It's been a project we've been undertaking. We can talk about that if, if people are interested. Um, but what we figured out is because of how um, significant Western Civ still is in, in so much of the curriculum, it ended up being easier for us to simply change the name of the course and actually change the curriculum of the course 
in any way. So that's the compromise we came to is that we didn't actually change the formal curriculum. We changed the name of the course instead and that just kind of speaks to the difficulties and the, the barriers that exist in this system. All right, so let's, let's start by just going around and getting some general thoughts in the survey. I want to start with Mike over there because from the beginning he's been the one who was most unambiguous about the utility of specifically the World History Survey. Um, so what is it that you think the survey achieves in your mind? Um, and is that different from what you think the course was designed to do? Um, does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Those courses were designed so long ago, I don't know what the, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> the creator had in mind. Um, but I just uh, to make it clear, I don't, I don't teach the American History Survey. I don't know quite what goes on there. No. Um, but I teach um, three iterations of the World History Survey. Uh, origins to 1500 in the semester, 1500 to the present, um, and then I do a 20th century world survey. Um, probably 15% of the students in those lower division courses are, are majors. Most of them are GE, okay. probably be the only yeah. history course they take. In that, the 20th century world's an upper division course, uh, on, still on the survey model. Uh, but a shorter time period. Um, and there we have a higher number of majors and then a very high number of students in a pre-credential program. So they're future high school teachers. Mm -hmm. And they're, they've got a different set of needs. But I, so I'm, I will die on this hill. I think that the World History Survey um, uh, should exist and more than should exist. It, um, should be uh, required for all undergraduates in, um, in California and the United States. Um, we all have seen those studies about the embarrassing lack of knowledge about the rest of the world amongst American citizens. And um, this world history can attend to that. Um, and without the world history uh, survey, students will be ill-prepared to be global citizens in the 21st century, mm -hmm. to have a sense of uh, the world, the, the planet that we share with um, other cultures and other nation states, and our sense of interconnections there. Um, we need to understand their role in the global economy, global security issues, uh, global threats such as uh, climate fluctuation. Um, and I think the World History Survey, especially if it's getting more environmental history plugged into it, can really prepare those students, um, again, to be better uh, citizens of the world. The World History Survey can also do something for American society, California society, uh, by promoting um, anti-racist agendas. Uh, Sac State has an um, anti-racist uh, agenda uh, policy created by the president a few years ago. Uh, to be worked into the curriculum. World History does a fantastic job there uh, by dispelling ignorance of other global cultures. Um, also, World History with its targets on the evil Western Civ uh, uh, <laughs> survey, um, undoes the Eurocentrism and white supremacy that Western Civ put into the academy. Um, and also world history undoes the provincialism of um, a number of American uh, students and, and professors and maybe the provincialism of some of the American uh, history surveys that I've seen. And then we also do the teaching of the analytic skills that will serve students well in any white collar job. Um, so, I, yes, save the World History yeah. Survey. It's a lot of work. It's not perfect, but um, I, I think it's just absolutely essential 
uh, for creating the, the kind of citizens that I want to live amongst. So I, just one response to that. So I think it's funny that you're, the, the idea that the world history in some ways has to right the wrongs of Western Civ. So <laughs> students, students have to take the American, the US history survey and then they take the Western Civ survey and then they take what world history to then dislearn all the stuff they got in those, in those classes. Uh, yeah, I realized, Josh, you know, as we contemplated this, this, uh, this gathering this morning, that we had a couple different issues uh, we were dealing. One was the survey per se, you know, um, is it the most efficient or, or valuable modality for teaching history at that front end of, of contact between uh, the great majority of our students uh, and and what we do uh, but then secondarily uh, was well if it is or if it isn't are there some surveys that do a better job of that than others so part of what we have up here is a mix of views on things like world history or western civ or in my case the u.s national uh, survey uh, but then we're also thinking about surveys and how we might you know jazz them how we not, might do better in the teaching of them. So I just, I, I wanted to be clear about that. All right, let's turn to Elise now. Um, what's been your experience with the survey and do you feel like it's a good vehicle for the kinds of ideas that you want to get across to the students? I think over the years it's changed and I think now students compared to, you know, in 20, 2009, 2010 when I started teaching, students are asking questions they hadn't asked mm. before. And so they are demanding something of their teachers that was not required previously. And I'm sure all of you remember growing up when you were in school and the history that you got. And the one memory I'm always thinking of is the Thanksgiving discussion. Yeah. And we're like sitting cutting out stuff and everything's great and everyone had a great day. And that was just the accepted narrative, the accepted norm. And I really think at this point in time, um, what the survey has previously offered um, and it being, obviously there's chronology within it, and we're really trying to get students to understand causality and those types of things. But it's been from a very narrow viewpoint or a lens that has only been colored with one thing and one thing that is very safe for a lot of people but is also lacking in a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I think our challenges that we're seeing in the United States at this point in time that we um, obviously are not strangers to but we are now seeing more because of technology giving us access to it is pushing us in realms that's requiring us to address more of the history. And I was just thinking of like how to hide an empire. Like yeah. first pages talks about Pearl Harbor and how we all know December 7th and we all know what happened that day, but we don't even address what happened in the Philippines that day. And so that blind spot that is there that's continuing to be discussed because it's easier or because it's safer um, is really what's kind of hurting our survey. And so I think depending on where you are, um, yeah. Like right now, I have the amazing opportunity of working at a wonderful college prep um, high school in D.C. And we have multiple course offerings besides our U.S. survey that then support the content in a variety of ways. Um, that really challenge the students to think outside the box and they're comfortable doing that. But I do think if you're looking at, I don't know, maybe legislation out of Virginia um, that's come down recently or you're looking at legislation out of Florida, it's going to stifle what's being able to be offered in the survey. And so automatically we're going to be creating narratives and experiences of the historical journey that are going to be leaving people out or even make, making people uncomfortable or completely false yeah. in a sense. And so I think there's a number of ways to look at it. Yeah. It's
it's, I, I love that you said that students want more out of the class because the national rhetoric is all about protecting students from these dangerous ideas. But you know, those, those ideas that they're, the way they want teach, us to teach history is the reason people say history is boring, which I was told by the, the clerk at the, when I got coffee this morning, that history is boring. But um, they want a more exciting history. They want to receive answers they haven't gotten before. They want to receive ideas they haven't, they haven't received before. Um, and they're being protected by the government from actually getting a good kind of history, a history that, that would actually engage them. So, um, Ed, love to hear your thoughts. Sure, Josh. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Hope this picks up. Um, so, you know, you uh, and Chris were kind enough to point us in the right direction to give us some some guidelines. And, and I have some thoughts that are going to play into what Chris is going to talk about later. Um, you know, but for me, I, I think over the years I've, I've come to see teaching this class as sort of, you know, nuts and bolts. Uh, it's a U U the U.S. History Survey. US history survey. Sorry, I read the U.S. History Survey. This, this class that you know, sort of our reason for existing. Um, you know, something of a challenge, right? There, there is this uh, uh, kind of traditional curriculum narrative, um, certainly one that's been pushed. By legislatures and by you know, people in executive offices all across the nation, and you know I, I've come to see my responsibility in some ways, or my you know, my job is to kind of hold a mirror up to that. And say, is this really you know what it's like? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, let's see. You know, let's see if if this is how it goes. And you know, I think there's lots of opportunities then to say, hey, but if, you know, if we are a nation that's based in theory in these ideals or these documents. You know, that's a very powerful strain in, in you know, the teaching and for many years the research in U.S. history. You know, we can say, how, how much is this true? You know, all of you have heard, you know, to the students, you can say, all of you have heard, you know, this idea that all men are created equal. All right, you know, how do you, how do you witness that and experience that in your daily existence? You know, is this really true? Can we, then let's go back and see moments where, you know, maybe this pendulum has shifted. And, they strive towards it, or they, you know, moved away from it as, as quickly as they could. Um, and I know Chris, you're going to uh, speak to that a little bit later. A um, couple of other things, right? You know, is 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 it our job as historians uh, and, and instructors, uh, you know, to give students a sort of thorough grounding? Well, you know, what do we have if if you're teaching in a quarter system? You got 10 weeks, 11 weeks. If you're teaching in a semester, um, you've got 16 weeks, maybe. Uh, you know, if you have your high school students for an entire year, you've got them for an entire year. Um, but even that, you know, in, in a whole year, what are you going to cover with all your students? So uh, certainly this issue of coverage, and they give us a laundry list. You all know this. They give us a laundry list of things you must cover. Uh, and then, of course, we just sort of pick and choose and decide this is really essential or this is important to us. Um, so, you know, there's that, you know, how thorough do we have to be? I think all of us come to this realization that, that you know, coverage is just not going to happen. You can't just dump all this content on students because, as Josh said, you end up with those students who go away and say, that was really boring. <laughs> that was the least interesting subject I'll ever want to encounter. Um, so then, you know, what do we do? You know, sometimes I think in our more optimistic moments we, we think, oh we're gonna be, you know, we're gonna be ambassadors for the discipline. We're gonna we're gonna recruit 
everybody who walks into my classroom is going to leave that classroom being a history major. And as Chris pointed out, or Josh, I think you said yeah. it was 3%. I think it's like 3%, yeah. Okay. So that's not happening. Yeah. But that's what Ron DeSantis think is, thinks is happening. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, you know, so, so then what, what are we doing, right? And certainly for, for most of us who are sitting uh, here in front of the room, you know, like Josh said, this is the one chance we're going to get to expose students to what we do and, and you know, what is history really about? Why did we all go into the discipline? Um, and a lot of that does plug into other things, obviously, that students are interested in. And uh, you know, that, that elusive uh, prey of you know, teaching your students critical thinking. And I think you know, we're all aware, hey, this is what people do when they have to contemplate what happened in the past. And there are lots of conflicting narratives and lots of different perspectives and so you know, how do they sift through that and that doesn't translate into some sort of practical reality uh, you know, or practical skill that can be put to use in the world in which we live um, I don't know what else is going to do it right to get people to sort of sift through all of this stuff that comes at them um, and students you know eventually figure that out right? sometimes it takes a little bit longer um, but I've really shifted to this idea that you know we're we're teaching this kind of skill in process analysis, identifying evidence, those types of things, and you know, I think we can have a discussion about that uh, as we go on. Just a couple of other things that I wanted to, to share. Um, at least one of the things that I started doing in this sense, you know, getting students to understand they've been given this narrative of history, this kind of notion of how our country works from the time they were very, very young. Um, I do a very similar thing to what you do. Sometime in the first week of the semester, we're talking about historical narrative. So and I, um, I put my hand on the whiteboard like this, and then I take my dry marker, and I draw around it, and instantly kids know what that is. Right? And then, you know, if they don't figure it out, then I draw my little legs, and they all say, that's a turkey. And I say, how do you know that? Right? You, know, you learned that when you were five years old. You know, you learn this this sort of you know great narrative of inclusion and you know fellowship and let's see you know let's see if that's how the Wampanoag really experienced mm -hmm. that, right so you know I, 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 when we were talking about that I, I definitely thought about that um, and then you know one of the other things that's happened to me uh, over the years is I've increasingly kind of been pushed in the direction of having a more global perspective that. You know, the United States of America thinks it exists on this, you know, uh, hermetically sealed island and it's, it's completely free from outside influences and we're the ones who influence everybody else. Um, but many years ago, you know, some of my friends from grad school dragged me into uh, going to the uh, AP World History Read. Some of you are familiar with the advanced placement uh, grading processes. Um, and so that was, you know, that was enlightening for me. And of course, it's, you know, it's a free, free reunion essentially on ETS's dime. Mm -hmm. So there's, um, there's, there's something to that. Um, but you know, just kind of being more aware um, of looking at the United States of America and global context. I think, Mike, you, you know, you alluded to that. Um, and I think that that's been very valuable, right? To sort of you know, say, hey, the United States of America exists because. You know, it's smack dab in, in many ways in the middle of this global empire, you know, that's being established by, let's say, the Spanish in the, in the 1400s and 1500s, or, you know, uh, all the various European powers that come in, and, and you know, how does that uh, transform what happens uh, 
in the Americas? How does what is created in the Americas get taken to far-flung places you know, as these, uh, these global economic systems are developing? Um, so that's, you know, that's something that I hope you know, we can get a chance to talk a little bit more about. Uh, as well. So I, I think, you know, I'm kind of the guy who's going to plow the middle road. Yeah, there you go. Basically. The non-confrontational one. That's why we brought you aboard. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and one last thing, right? One of the things I do tell my students, and, and this kind of ties to the crisis in the humanities, mm-hmm. I don't know that they always pay attention, but when they do learn that I was on this well-known game show, uh, and they say, well, how did you know that stuff? Well, first of all, they don't know about it because they're kids. They don't watch TV. You know, their grandparents might watch it, so they get dragged into watching it. Grandparents, um, but they, you know, they, they, they find out. They go, "How did you know all that stuff?" And I'm like, "Well, you know, I went to college and I got this sort of well, you know, grounded education in the humanities. So, if you want to win thousands of dollars on a game show, maybe this is what you want to study." I don't think college explains why you did so well in the Yiddish theater category. <laughs> that was the one that that got me. I was remarked upon by the the, the host. Yeah. Yeah, Josh, didn't he say it was because his parents had a set of encyclopedias <laughs> somewhere in the back room of the house? You lay on the floor reading encyclopedias. Oh, that was part of it. That was part of it. A shout out to encyclopedias. And yeah. reading. Yeah. Um, a lot of good stuff there. I, I think the, the idea of the, the kind of content forward version of, of the survey is really important because that puts so much pressure, especially given that we know that our students, this is when they get history right, in our classes. And this idea, you know, you hear this so often from uh, instructors that I'm so behind or I'm not going to get through it. And so, so, such a weird thing to say when you think about it. So what, what does that mean that the students don't know history because you didn't talk about X, Y, and Z or, or you know, they're going to not know how to do anything because you didn't get to this one, one point. In, in the end, it seems like the, the purpose of, of any history class should basically be the same. And the content is just a way of getting through th- these broader ideas about history and humanity and connections and interactions and that sort of stuff. Uh, I think we get caught up in this idea that, you know, we're falling behind, we're not going to get through all the material or something like that. That's ultimately not the most important thing. And if it is, you're going to constantly be stressed out and anxious about uh, the need to, to finish history, I guess, is, is the goal. So let's, let's go to Chris last. I saved him, we saved him for last because uh, people might walk out when they hear his. <laughs> no. I certainly hope so. No. So hit us with your view of the uh, the U.S. History Survey. Now we've walked out of you know better places in America. <laughs> uh, no, I tend to agree with my colleagues. I have a fairly sanguine view of of this survey. Um, you know, as as a narrative, uh, I think it's certainly a plausible way to tell a story, isn't it? I mean, the reason I, I left a four-year university was willing to go to the junior college is because I like even when I was at the four-year school, I like teaching those introductory history courses, you know, those freshman courses. I liked being that first exposure, you know, for the students and, you know, get my hooks in them. Um, But, you know, over the years, uh, my views of of the utility of that has changed a bit, and I'll try to explain why. So uh, let me just come right down to it. I think the standard version U.S. history narrative is unfixable. We need to start over for reasons I'll say in a minute. And the second uh, point is that if we're going to stick with surveys, as my uh, colleagues I think have made an able case for doing, we have to include in our teaching much more than we currently do uh, about what narrative storytelling is. 
That is, we want to empower our students to understand the mechanics of narrative, what Hayden White called the meta-history, uh, so that they are able to be good consumers uh, of story. You know, sometimes I think we're satisfied with the survey course because that's what we inherited. You know, it came down to us from the mountain, you know, and it's just always been done that way, like it's some sort of immutable um, modality for teaching history. Uh, some, you know, would say, well, it, it privileges coverage and content over other things. It's like the Platte River, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep. When I was department chair, you know, and I have new faculty teaching, I would finally, at the end, I'd watch them teach and they were so earnest covering that whole curriculum outline, you know, and I'd say, what do you really want to be talking about? You know, what really turns you on? If you didn't have to somehow conform to this model, this curriculum uh, model. The problem, I think, with inheriting that storytelling form is, that, as Hayden White said, historians tend to be naive storytellers. Uh, with little formal storytelling training, say, like our lit crit colleagues uh, have with narrative. And so it's not surprising to me that the battle over curriculum only highlights going on in the country now, only highlights the basic limitations of the narrative survey. Certainly that's true, I think, in the U.S. history survey, where you have Florida passing, uh, you know, the Individual Freedom Acts, the Stop Woke uh, Act in, into law. And I would submit that such culture-fueled curriculum battles, swipes at academic freedom, and unnerving displays of partisan political interference are likely not going away as long as we see the survey as a content-oriented modality in a content-stuffed curriculum where partisan interests presume to regulate which content and whose stories. Part of the unavoidable result, I think, of bringing history education into that civic or partisan sphere you know, and it's sometimes said that, you know, should, students should be required to take these courses because of some kind of idea of civic responsibility. One of our colleagues recently on Twitter wrote, we require that secondary school and university students study history because we hope it will shape their behavior as citizens. The work of historians, therefore, is always likely to be controversial. And I thought to myself, shape their behavior as citizens? The fact that we, we, we observed yesterday the uh, you know, anniversary of January 6th, I thought we must not be doing a terribly great job uh, if that's the case. And I've had, tr truly, I've had a problem with that rationale for a long time. If we're supposed to be building good citizens, well, let's just say if we were medical doctors, we're guilty of malpractice. If you, you know, I mean, I, I think this was brought home to me in May of 2020 as I watched George Floyd die on that hard asphalt of Minneapolis. This was not supposed to be happening according to the standard version history of the United States, the one we teach, that curriculum outline. By the way, don't feel too put upon if you teach U.S. history. I'm talking about what I call the standard version history. That is the history that was in mind when George Bancroft was president of this association and which we've inherited in many ways as a narrative almost unchanged, and I'll, and I'll get back to that in a second. 
uh, you know, the triumphal story of the United States with its progressive and evolving teleology and expanding racial justice. Certainly not in the same summer of 2020 when John Lewis's death also occurred, the civil rights legend who 55 years earlier had laid unconscious and bleeding, beaten near death, on a different street in another American city, Selma, Alabama. This was not the narrative promise of the U.S. History Survey, implauded from the start as a kind of romance, right, of expansion and triumphalism, or even if we were to implaud it, as Hayden White might say, as a comedy. You know, well, yeah, there's a lot of conflict early on, but in the end, the kids get together and get married, you know, and there's a happy ending. Um, this was the wrong narrative entirely. This was some kind of hellish groundhog day, some kind of repetition of bad experience. What the, and I was no longer so optimistic that somehow it was all leading to something clearer, right? More progressive, more open. And I always had tried to teach the history survey that way, folks. You know, like I believed that you could sort of come from within to define those conflicts as somehow expansive. What the U.S. History Survey really cultivates, I would submit, as it is currently constructed, is support for the national imperial project of the United States, what I call the sovereignty, tra the sovereignty trap. It is the unquestioned assumption that the central concern of history is the story of formal power in those who wield it, a story about laws and those who make them, about politics and political leaders, about wars and those who lead them, about wealth and those who possess it, about big political and governing systems like states and, and empires. And this is not surprising considering that these entities are great producers of what we might call non-perishable evidence. Now the archives are stuffed with the evidence of these institutions and that tends to get an outsized uh, presence, you might say then, in the standard version survey narrative. Uh, and I think it was designed that way uh, on purpose. So it's a kind of storytelling narcissism where we look into the mirror of power and endlessly fixate on its reflection. And the reflection that always comes back to us is always ultimately about formal power in those who have it. In the case of the SVH, that is the standard version history, it is a story defined by the inescapable gravity of the nation state, the design and creation of the powerful and the claims of the nation state, of the United States, to power and sovereignty over the behavior and affairs of people, a power that extends to the stories of the past. And I'll give you one example, which if you teach US history, you're more than familiar with. It's in every textbook. Westward expansion. Here is a sobering toll of destruction, some would say genocide, that students often lament for its cruelty and its barbarism. Yet, pointedly, when it comes time to write the essay, many, and not, not all, but enough that it gets stuck in my, you know, my craw, nevertheless blithely accept it for without it, they write, we wouldn't be the country we are today, however lamentable. The country we are today, as I thought in May of 2020. 
you know, as if recency bias justifies genocide or, or teleology or even that omniscient narrator of history where the history just seems to be happening without a discrete teller. And that's one of the things I want to say about the survey is we've got to be much more open about how these, ner these narratives get created with our students. It is not the students who are really at fault, I would submit. It's the story itself that we tell wrapped in the conceits of nationalism and, and particularly racial nationalism. Um, it may be time to reimagine, is what I'm saying, what history education looks like in this country. You know, Sam Weinberg's Stanford History Education Group published a survey back in 2018 showing that even most history majors at some of our most hallowed four-year institutions graduating with uh, bachelor's degrees in history are not trained to understand the inner architecture of historical narrative and historical reasoning because of that content-specific curriculum. Uh, you know, I remember coming across Hayden White in graduate school and being told by my major professor, there's no money in that, you'll never get a job, <laughs> never mind that. But it might be time to, uh, to renew acquaintances with Professor, the late Professor White. Teach narrative history? Sure. Yeah, that, I, I, yes, but let's teach them what a narrative is and let's start, as Vincent Harding says, the central question of our history being the question of our future. What kind of nation do we want? And I think this is key, as I finish my little uh, spiel here, this is key. The stories we tell ourselves should reflect the nation we want to be and should connect with the history outside our window. You know, I couldn't think of the historical narrative associated with the standard version U.S. history that would have really explained George Floyd. You know, there would have been too dialectical, you know, for that teleology. Too much going backwards, I think. Um, so we have to be more thoughtful. Instead of the stories that keep us sick, that kind of gaslighting that happens when you tell students who experience this, who witness this kind of uh, injustice and violence, for example, that don't worry, history's going in the right direction. Not to worry, it's all going in the right direction. Kind of gaslighting, I think, that happens. We gotta privilege stories that make us well. And that means more voices and more stories drawn from those little pocket drawers where we keep them in the roll top desk and brought out to our more spacious and reconstructed center desk, freed of the distortions of racial nationalism and white nationalism. Those stories must be told in the context of broader timelines, beyond borders. Sam, who in your state? Right. Uh, a much wider geography of the Americas and in service of the facts of widely diverse peoples and not in the service of some imagined racially narrated national progress like the second president of the AHA would have understood, George Bancroft. Thus, BIPOC could be freed from the stories of perpetual oppression in the national survey because no longer would those stories need be fitted into the oppressive frame of triumphal national progress. And those millions of diverse peoples otherwise pinned down in the plains pinned down in the fields, pinned down on the streets of those narratives, will be likewise freed from those captive stories. Put simply, we need truer, more inclusive histories freed from the burdens of white nationalism in the case of the U.S. survey. We need better stories because we need better, healthier, freer selves. Well, me and Chris have talked about this very issue for about 60 episodes now, so I'm going <laughs> to 
put it out to everybody else if there are reactions to that or any, any responses to what Chris is saying. And, and eventually, we'd love to hear from from you all as well. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I, one of the first things that comes to mind uh, listening to you is that we'll come to the first day of my world history survey where we talk about narratives, we talk about um, uh, what world history is and how it's uh, it developed as an attack on the Western SIP model and the shortcomings of the Western SIP model. And also that it's an attack on the nation state as the paradigm for studying history. And I, um, you know, I think maybe the, the issue, some of the issues that you're seeing with the American History Survey is using that model, this rel relatively new in human history creation of the nation state to understand history. Yes. And, it's, and that's not how history works, right, yeah. in, in a globalized planet. So, um, you know, join the WHA, uh, <laughs> drink the Kool-Aid, you've got it all figured out. Um, as, as a relatively newer field, I think that world history is more self-aware. Yeah. And um, you know, understands the hate and white critique of meta history, and works that into the way that we we present the class and sell the class. And one of the things we have to do, and, and I know there's some uh, veteran world history folks in the audience here. One of the things we have to do in the beginning is explain to students this isn't going to be a laundry list of everything on the planet. That we've got some projects here, and have to um, you know. The problem of what is the World History Survey mm -hmm. is the first two days of the class. Um, one, one other thing before I uh, uh, pass the mic. I think with American history and um, this, uh, this teleological trap of everything that came to this point, um, we can avoid that in world history because we, we highlight places um, that were major centers of, you know, scare quotes here for podcast listeners, civilization, <laughs> right? Um, what does it mean to learn in 2023 that Mali was one of the mm -hmm. great centers of wealth, that Mansa Musa yep. is by some uh, accounts the, the wealthiest individual in human history, and then compare that to the conditions in Mali today? Or at the same time, go to Southeast Asia, that the Khmer Empire was this incredible center of wealth and sophistication and architecture and you know the past 50 60 years in Cambodia have been a different story um, so what what does that mean to see these rises of uh, complex societies and you know do tick off all the things in terms of civilizational complexity long-distance trade yada 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 that have gone away mm -hmm. and that's so different than the the nation-state framework of American history, well, everything's leading up to this, and, and it's just going to get better. It's like, no, we're looking at the, the rises, and it's a terrible cliche term, but these rises and falls of historical centers. And I think that really challenges um, students that might fall into that teleological trap. Right. That's, everything's leading to this one, you know, because I think part of what we get from the U.S. History Survey, and I, I think just broader history in general, is that everything's leading to us, and yeah. like we're the culmination of history. Yeah. Um, and focus on the fact, well, no, all these places have yeah. disappeared or, or gone away or, you it's know, gone through those shifts. Like you, you need that Ozymandias moment where yeah. you find in the trunkless legs of the statue, right? Yeah. So what, what does that mean for our mm -hmm. fabulous system? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I share your optimism about world history and what it can do. I worry that 
you know, your ideal version of it is not always the way it gets, it gets taught. Um, you know, the old, the cliche when I was in grad school uh, was that world history is, was just Western Civ plus China. I don't know if people heard that. Um, I don't think it is that anymore. If you look at the curriculums, they're much more inclusive. But I think that is a fallback for people often who are, don't have experience teaching world history or thrown into the class, which weirdly enough, world history seems to be the class uh, people get thrown into more often than not. Um, but, but I think the idealized version of, of world history can do all the things that you said. And you know, it goes back to what I said earlier that you know, it almost has to atone for the sins of the US history survey. Um, that's, that's one of our, 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 our goals as well. So Chris or Elise, do you have any reactions? Yes, there's several things um, that I've been reflecting on as my fellow panel members have been speaking. And one of the things, um, Chris, that you brought up was the juxtaposition of John Lewis and George Floyd at the same time. And I mean, I'm 38 years old, and my parents are 60 and 61, and my dad did not integrate until fourth grade. And so I'm from Southern Illinois, and so the conversations that we were having at our dinner table when I was growing up are very different than many people's conversations that they were having. And having to acknowledge that and reckon with that past is much different than someone who has never had to acknowledge it or reckon with it. And I have had the amazing opportunity to work with, um, I taught a class on a team at Stanford and I worked in the Graduate School for Education um, with some steppies as they're called. And the candidates that I had in my class were all history teachers. And interestingly enough, um, they're uh, about 75% of them were teachers of color. And if you've looked at any of the numbers for teachers, um, specifically teachers of color, you'll know that um, black teachers um, make up a very small population. It's about maybe 6%, 6.7% teachers across the board. And it's even more stark um, for other people. And so one of the things I keep thinking of um, is the way in which they were approaching teaching in the Bay Area and the things that they were willing to be brave to try in their classes, even if their lead teachers or their head teachers that they were working with were not really great to them. And I think that that's something that gives me hope to what you were mentioning, Chris. But it also is kind of scary because those same people that have the power over those new teachers are typically the people that are in power making the decisions in the room mm -hmm. and are the people that can do the silencing. And being at Howard has been a completely amazing experience where the silencing does not happen um, in a way that it happens in other spaces. Um, and so I just keep reflecting on how can we take the narrative to places it hasn't been if we're not addressing the windows and mirrors that are not being offered at the K through 12 space mm -hmm. for then students to want to continue to ask questions to then be involved in creating a more sound narrative and teaching it in a way that's inclusive, accurate, historically accurate, and can continue to grow and be vulnerable, right? Because there has to, there's a bit of vulnerability that has to take place within all of our classrooms for us to be able to truly address history. And if we're, if we're going there, we gotta go there. <laughs> but we can't get on the plane and decide to launch and then be like, oh, we're coming back down because then we're all gonna crash and burn at that point. <laughs> and if I'm thinking of and this idea that, oh no, I didn't get there. I'm, and I had the same panic right before I left for break. It was like, oh, we're supposed to get through reconstruction. But it's like, how am, uh-uh. <laughs> None of us made it. And I'm thinking, all right, if I'm, I'm starting pre-Cahokia, <laughs> and I'm trying to get through reconstruction, 
by December, starting in September. That is a lot, and that's a lot for people to feel like they are doing incorrectly. Mm-hmm. And so how do we also have that conversation mm-hmm. as educators um, in knowing that our attempts to create these spaces for windows and mirrors, our attempts to create these spaces for students to question, our attempts to create these spaces for students to see different people's experiences. And I want to be careful not to maybe use the word perspective um, necessarily because in some of the latest legislation, some of the language surrounding perspective, specifically out of Virginia, has been really dicey. Um, But giving people the opportunity to hear different experiences and stories and what that looked like at that time and maybe what that felt like. I mean, we all know history smells sometimes. (laughs) And if the kids aren't, if it's not, smelling to them, then we're, we've done something wrong. Yeah. If they're going through and they're like, hand turkeys, yeah! Um, and they're <laughs> never ever going back and going, what does that actually look like? What does that actually mean? If we're not going to actually talk about the Redskins and what that means, mm-hmm. then are, we've missed something completely. But then we also understand why we have the people that are saying, we're still connected to this name. And so how do we get that voice to not be the loudest voice in the room? or the only accepted voice in the room. And I think that that's a great challenge of this moment. Yeah, very well said. And? Um, just a couple of things, and then we'll flip it over to our yeah. very kind audience. Um, whenever I think of coverage, I'm gonna betray how really outdated my cultural references are. There's a very, very old Simpsons episode about the last day of school. Mm-hmm. The kids are all excited, the bell rings, and the teacher, the history teacher, runs out and says, wait, you didn't learn how World War II ends. Yeah. <laughs> and the kids all freeze, and he says, we won! And then, you know, it's summer. <laughs> they all go off to the USA. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely, Mike, I'm, I'm on board, right? I, like, like I said, you know, I've kind of been dragged into this world history uh, universe, and, and it certainly has influenced how I approach uh, the U.S. history survey. So, and Chris, you know world history, that's what you mean. You know, you know what it's like. You can, we can do this. I was but, convert. Yeah. <laughs> but the question is then, I think, you know, that this panel is raising is, okay, well, what is the vehicle in which that happens? Right? Do we blow up this survey? Do we reform it? And you're saying it's beyond hope. It's a junker. Let's just you know crush it and move on. Um, you know we can we can discuss that obviously, um, um, but also that that idea you know that there's this notion that the past is a static you know uh, thing right and, and you you went through all that right it's like uh, you know that all happened all oh, that was terrible about the Trail of Tears kids all know about that that's all terrible but thinking about the consequences of that, they can't wrap their minds around that or you know what the implications of those decisions 200 years ago were or you know, anything else like that. Slavery, oh, slavery is terrible, right? You know, okay, well, what are the consequences of that? Uh, it's all in the past, that's that, thank God, right? But then, you know, it's like, it's the, you know, it's that uh, time-worn Faulkner quote, right? You know, the past isn't dead, it's, it's not in the past. past. We're living that. Okay. Well, we'd love to hear from uh, you folks. Uh, if you, have, you want to chime in, you want to push back, you want to add on, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Yes. Yeah. Hi, I'm Ernie Tucker from the U.S. Naval Academy. We're 
founded by George Bancroft, of course. <laughs> 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 huge history, so sure. Things have come along a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, I want to address an issue that has come to my attention over the last few years is the whole, again, the whole question of teaching history in high school, which Pete has been referred to, but the issue of AP preparation and the high school are, you know, the, the, the evaporation of high school history courses, number one, but also the APification of everything, yeah. which is if you've got those, those grades and the grading on everything. But, but that to me is a huge beast in the room that needs to be talked about, especially if you're talking about survey courses. I, I feel like people come to me now, almost some of them you know, have had no history at all, you know, much less wrong history, just none, you know. And then you're like, well, maybe some kind of survey will help them have some establishment or something. So just, that's just some of my thought. Yeah, you know, throwing it is, you know, the way it goes downhill, right? You know, so Mike says, what, what are those community colleges teaching? And we say, what, what are those high schools? And they say, what are those? Because it's something like the U.S. survey, you know, the iteration all the way through the segments, right? So that by the time they're getting to you, you're going, you haven't had history? You know, again, that's part of what I'm asking is, so how effective is this narrative if we feel like we're having to reinvent the wheel at each segment, you know? But yeah, we guys want to talk about AP. I have some strong feelings on the color. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I have um, not ever wanted to teach it because there is an extreme issue for me with the College Board in the sense that the more money you have, the more privilege you have, and the more power you then have on the test. Um, and so for me, I've avoided it. The current school I work at does not offer any AP history courses because they feel like they can serve a more enriching curriculum without being attached to the College Board, which I find really powerful. But coming from Cupertino, where AP rules everything, um, specifically AP science, and then putting the effort into it, then you lose a bit of of the authenticity that is not considered valued by the AP because it's not there. And so it almost becomes this very tunnel vision, um, educational experience of wanting to know exactly what is going to be on the test so I can study that exact thing and then I want you to tell me exactly how to write the essay so they can write in that exact way without even really having that freedom or that flexibility to be curious beyond that. And I think that's really what's stifling um, some of our students um, in, the, in the high school level um, when they're taking APs. I think the other thing that maybe we could consider more is like what does it mean to have true vertical alignment and to offer a true guaranteed and viable curriculum? And how do we get those conversations started so that we have elementary school teachers talking to middle school, talking to high school, talking to community college, talking to four-year institutions, and beyond to figure out what are we really talking about? And what do we really want students to know and be able to do? And if they're not meeting that, what do we need to do as educators in the room to make sure that we can get them there? And get all of them there with windows and mirrors. Because there's nothing worse than sitting in a class um, and I can like think, I lived in Montana for five years. I'm from Southern Illinois. There's nothing worse than sitting in a class and having people discuss history that concerns you in a way that removes you from it. Mm-hmm. Or in a way that speaks to you as if you are a thing. Or in a way that only partially acknowledges it. And I think like, that's where I think we have to start to yeah. You guys have any thoughts on AP? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with uh, at least it's not an authentic sort of um, academic experience or in some ways, especially because the, the way these tests are constructed and the way that College Board ETS administered them. Plus, I mean, it's, it's um, I don't know, some of you in this room might be familiar with this. I, I wasn't there at that particular year. Um, but ETS made a pretty, pretty radical decision with regard to the world history curriculum a few years ago, and the test only covers everything from 1400 or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, just yeah, they just said that's it. We're making you know, and and you know, the people who were basically teaching the first half of that class were told you're you're irrelevant, and we're not even gonna, the test will not address mm -hmm. the curriculum that you um, raise with your students. So I mean that just probably speaks volumes in itself. Right? But, um, yeah. And there's, like Elise you know, said, there's lots of other things, but we're not here to, uh, we're not here to engage in an orgy of ETS college board action, which we could. <laughs> well, that said, I can't give up the opportunity to jump into this orgy. Um, <laughs> I can't bring this up into the party. Um, yes, no, this is now a mature <laughs> podcast. I have to change the settings on it. I, unfortunately, the, the Roman culture is no longer yeah. So, um, <laughs> but um, I, I've been increasingly disillusioned with AP uh, from the perspective of someone who's been a grader for uh, well over a decade. And um, while I've learned a lot about how to design questions and how to grade with rubrics and, mm -hmm. and backward design, I've actually learned a lot. Uh, it's frequently been object lessons, looking at questions that were a bit disastrous. Mm -hmm. and yeah. There was a really bad one this year that I graded. Um, about the opium war, and um, in the question and in the map, it asked students to, to talk about the different factories in Canton. And factory in 1830s and 1840s in China means a warehouse. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean um, you know where homeless people come. Right. Yeah. It's right. not. A, it's not. But this misled otherwise very well informed students. Who knew some history? Who had to, who had to talk about industrialization in a time where yeah. there wasn't industrialization, and it was just an outright disaster. Mm -hmm. And um, also, what I've seen o over the years is um, students who may know some great history and may have some really great critical thinking and some creative ideas, but don't know how to to answer this specific test question mm -hmm. by this rubric or students who really didn't know that much history, but sure could answer that rubric, and so I gotta check off all the little boxes. So I, anyway, I'll, I'll step away from the... Uh, well, I mean, it's the ultimate, it's the ultimate, we're, we're talking about content-based history, it's the ultimate content-based based history, right? It can only, the only thing it can do is get across the specific content you need to take the test, which, as Lise was saying, just kind of neuters the whole classroom experience. It takes away that passion and creativity that's so necessary. Um, you also mentioned the, uh, the, the idea of students coming in with no history, but somehow they still have some narrative, right? There's some narrative there, even if there's no history. You know, I have students who don't know any history, but they're sure that they know that Muslims hate women or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's not historical, right? But it's something they, they know. It's, it's gotten through to them in some way, so, uh, yeah. Oh. Um, I'm Molly Morris from the University of Pittsburgh, and I apologize if I came late. I have to be early. Awesome, awesome panel. Thank so you. I'm glad um, you're here. I have so many thoughts about all the issues you raised, but just two that I want to say now. I totally agree that students come in with a narrative, even when they yeah. don't know the history we want them to know. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a real responsibility, and I was a late bloomer to this, but I'm like fully on board now. 
we gotta know about the video games, we have to know about the movies, we have to know about like what are the things that are giving our students the ideas, aside from the general water they drink, right, of the narrative that they grow up with. But like we have to engage beyond just like you need to read this book because they're getting their history from a lot of other stuff. Yeah. So you need to know like what are the things that they're playing and listening to. And just I recognize we have to have a multimedia engagement with historical content production. Yeah. Just be a little aware of it. And my other question is a little weird, but I have often thought, and I'm mean, interested in the debates about the intellectual work we do in our rooms and the textbooks we use or don't use. But I also have this deep interest in like literally physically inviting classrooms of K through 12 teachers to meet with my college students and just be like, this is what, because there's such a disconnect often when our students show up at college and they're like, oh, I never had history like this before, or this is so different than it was done. And I just think, yes, all of the intellectual debate is great, but what if we all just sometimes like met with each other at our classrooms and physically said to a room full of eighth graders or sixth graders, or second graders. These folks are still studying this history. And I just, you know, have you all ever done that? Have you ever participated yeah, yeah. in? Talk about the world history too. Yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that, Molly. We, for, I guess, three or four summers, ran what we call the World History Teachers Institute at our college. And I met sixth, seventh, and 10th, 10th grade teachers. Uh, the last year we had uh, Alan Karras from Berkeley uh, come talk to them. And they wanted to talk about AP, you know, and their frustrations. And they said, well, you know, what do we do? And Alan told them, teach what you want. Now, they had made it clear we have a curriculum model and oversight and all this stuff. But when he told them, teach what you want, he, he said it in a you know, more substantial way than that. He meant teach what is compelling to you historically. In other words, I thought there was a palpable sort of sigh among the teachers who thought, we can do this, <laughs> you know? And I, I just want to give two shout outs uh, in response. One, the California History Social Science Project uh, does a really great job bringing um, active researching faculty together with teachers. Um, done a, a couple of projects with them over the years. There's, there's both the California-wide and then at, uh, there's different centers like at, uh, at Davis and Berkeley and um, down in Southern California. Uh, and then also in regards to uh, your comment about other historical narratives that students are engaged in, um, like video games. Uh, my friend Alyssa Seppenwall, who will now have to listen to this podcast, um, wrote an incredible book on the Haitian Revolution on screen. And what she, she intended to write about film, and what she's found is that the Haitian Revolution hasn't really been done very well on screen. There's, it's even the punchline of a Chris Rock movie, or a Chris Rock's brilliant movie, right? Where he's promoting this Haitian, the film about the Haitian Revolution, and the, the white interviewers have n no idea what he's talking about, right? But what she found is, in video games, it's really lively, and in Assassin's Creed of all things, which I, I don't know yeah. nothing about any of this, there, um, there's uh, uh, a Haitian version, or a, a Haitian, I don't know, series episode, what, 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 what do you call it? An, an edition of a, of a ongoing video game. I, don't, I know nothing, but it's very lively, and um, something that students engage in, in various forms of social media, and they can, uh, certain characters from that were some of the most popular characters. And um, they had it. She, you know, in her teaching, she discovered that students actually knew a fair amount about this subject that, like, perennially gets marginalized 
in uh, in sort of age of revolutions discussions yeah. and the Haitian Revolution. So, um, Felicia cool. Steppenwall's um, something Haitian Haitian Revolution on screen. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll I'll say that um, I teach the Asian History Survey, and I used to always get students who came in specifically because they had played a video game called uh, based on Romance of the Three Kingdoms. <laughs> um, I can't remember. The name of, it might have just been called *Romance of the Three Kingdoms*, the video game, or something like that. But that was their entry point to Asian history. Now it's often anime that gets them into into Asian history. Um, so there are these these you know kind of popular culture things that are bringing people into history, and they're making references. They're asking me about people I've never heard of, right? Which you never want that as a, as an instructor, but um, but they have this deep knowledge of this very specific thing, and they've gotten it through through popular culture, which is it's it's really important to engage with that absolutely. I think something too, I was thinking, Molly, thank you for bringing that up. I don't think, um, I think it's never too young to start that. And I think of my upbringing, I went to a child development lab um, for my preschool years on a college campus in Southern Illinois University. And a lot of my classmates, their parents were professors and we would go to their lecture halls and we would ask them questions. They would come in, scientists would come in, bring animals. And so there was always this dialogue that was open for questioning. And I think it's really important that we start this dialogue at a young age so kids don't feel intimidated talking about difficult topics. They feel like it's okay to dive into them, be vulnerable, maybe get things wrong, so that they continue to want to go back and learn really tough things. And I think there is something to be said for having these conversations more and structuring them in a way that invites them to be open to history and narratives in a way that is safe but also is honest and allows them to kind of squirm with it, starting supported very young. And so I think that would be something we could probably, we could build that. Let's work on it. We could build that. <laughs> uh, there was a, a hand up, yes. Sure. I appreciate the panel. Thank you. And then, of course, 
person that we have throwing a lot of particles at them, like Ned Ayers, teaching history of farm. Um, the, the Sam Liger, uh, 2007 piece about making the story. Uh, and then that, that kind of gets some students to think, oh, this class is going to be real. You know? This class is going to require uh, my attention. But one of the things, one of the questions that I would like the, the panel to address is uh, that modern U.S. Why do they hate it? So much? <laughs> my evals on those on that, on that modern history survey are always very terrible comments. Like America is such a awful place. Or, this guy really, really hates America. <laughs> okay. Things like that. Yeah. Or, yeah, or certainly they'll say not that many black people were killed, mm. <laughs> or not that many Native Americans were killed, or, or where would we like you've already addressed, where would we be today if mm. it wasn't for the Yeah, so how do I get my students to uh, kind of see the, I guess to take the value judgment? Right. I'd open that question up to anybody here, if anyone yeah. has. Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm wondering, are the students, maybe you just answered the right question. I was thinking when you were talking, you know, hey, the students, that they aren't interested, they don't want to, because they're somehow resistant to learning something other than the narrative they are, mm -hmm. yeah. they have received. Yeah. 
And I sort of put that out here to everyone as a question. How often do you give over the control mm -hmm. of your classroom in your course to the students to just take it where they want, even if it's that way you yeah. want? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's great points. Um, Oh, you talked about continuing conversation, right? That you can't just do it once and then, especially early in the semester because they're, they're not gonna remember what happened by the next week anyway, right? Um, so I teach an Asian history class and that's become, I mean, the class is a mess because Asian history is a strange concept. It's like 80% of humanity, but it's not world history. But there's this weird boundary between Asia and Europe that you have to, I always joke, I can't talk about what happened in Egypt when we're talking about Islam because that's not Asian any longer. Um, but what I've become kind of obsessed with, particularly in the first part of the class, which goes to 1800, is the design of the class. The curriculum says we're supposed to cover India, China, and Japan, three things that did not exist in any meaningful way, you know, prior to like, you know, what was that, the 1860s, just to put a number on it or something like that. Um, so I've become obsessed with this idea of I need to continue to remind them that when we talk about what's happened in East Asia, that's not China, right? So I won't refer to Shang Dynasty China, for instance, because it's, you know, this little tribal confederation along the Yellow River. Uh, the idea that you know it is the foundation of this thing that thousands of years later would become China is is such a conceit, such a narrative conceit. So that that's led to this constant conversation that I think they're completely bored with, by the way. But um, where I where I continue to point out that this thing that I might refer to as as India does not exist as India in any meaningful way. That Japan is not a, a concept that people would have understood, you know, during the Ashikaga Shogunate or something like that. Um, that they need to be, you know, constantly reminded that these national nation state narratives are constructed in the modern age. And if, if we're just gonna get in the class and, uh, you know, repeat those national narratives, do the work of, as they like to say, Xi Jinping in, in promoting Chinese ethno-nationalism, then that's not a very good, uh, you're not doing a very good job in the classroom. Um, your second point, I'm going to let somebody else talk because, yeah. Can I speak to your first point, Brian? Um, I, I do that spiel in the first day or two and then revisit it several times, um, especially during the 20th century world survey. And there we're on some more familiar ground. I mean, they, they know World War II, for example. Mm -hmm. So I teach them World War II from the Soviet perspective, mm -hmm. where D-Day is pretty marginal. And that ruffles some feathers and, and, and you know, ch changes some, uh, hopefully changes some thinking about the war. Or um, uh, the Pacific War, uh, something that's much larger that, in terms of time period than what they think World War II is. Uh, going back to 37 or 1931 as the start of this conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I found that like working with the students in these areas that they think they know, and you got you know you, it's, it's war, so you got you got those boys in there <laughs> the, who know all the cannons and the mm -hmm. ships and all that, and it really messes with their minds, and I think in a really creative way, and can help also, I, I think ideally do some historical empathy of looking at familiar situations from figures who they would never thought of. What does what does World War II mean for the Javanese? Quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, and it fundamentally changes uh, the Javanese future and turns them into Indonesians, arguably. Um, so I think, I think those, you can keep revisiting that and, um, and also uh, keep going back to you know, how, how would a nation state uh, parameter not explain what we're looking yeah. at right now? Yeah. You know, this, this can't be explained simply by focusing on one nation state. You have to look at the way in which 
these various population centers have economic and demographic uh, connections. Yeah. Um, just real quick, because I, I remember your second point was about uh, giving the class over to students. And again, I think that content model makes that basically impossible to do. Um, so, you know, the way I've come to think of this, you just can't be precious about your, your content. That you could, might come in with a plan to talk about something one day, but if it gets derailed, that's, that's going to be the most memorable day of the class for those students. Um, and it's going to be the most rewarding for you as well. So, you, I think it's really important to go in not with this sense that this is what I need to cover today. And if I didn't cover this stuff, then I somehow failed the students. Because, again, they're going to get way more out of those lively, chaotic, sometimes messy discussions than they are from just hearing you talk for. I like uh, somebody, one of you guys said something about the hegemonic yeah. narrative, you know, and it's just dread, right? So you, you leave the classroom just depressed by the narrative or something. And I, and I think that's part of the problem with the sovereignty trap is it's seen as these, the large personal forces of history. Where, and I think part of the answer I would just say is, is to do more intimate history, you know, get, get back to discrete moments specific people in those moments reacting to these otherwise large and personal forces. I mean, one of the things I'm doing here this, this week in Philadelphia is uh, I've been reading about and uh, writing about Oni Judge, who was one of George Washington's enslaved servants who lived in the executive mansion with Washington here in, in uh, Philadelphia and was the nation's capital, and, and who famously fled just before Washington's second term ended. And he went after her, you know, he tried to get her back fugitive slave, he'd signed the Fugitive Slave Act in 1793. If you tell that story from the perspective of Oni Judge, who was interviewed twice late in her life by abolitionist newspapers, where she gives her perspective on what it was like to live in the executive mansion, you restore the personhood. You're not just in that simple, you know, victim and, and, and vanquished kind of model narrative. And you restore the person and what I call the self-sovereignty of individuals who could make choices on there. So I would humbly suggest maybe one way to get past the dread of the hegemonic narrative is to personalize it, you know, make it more intimate. I'm gonna <clears throat> wanna go back to the, the original question. Uh, was it Alan? Oh yeah. In the back. Kevin. Kevin. Kevin, I knew there was a was an anecdote. <laughs> well, you know, Kevin, you were asking about why do the students have such a visceral dislike for this class, and, and you mentioned, you know, you kind of alluded to, but they don't like hearing about the topics. Um, and you know, one of the things that I did when Josh and Chris first sort of presented this idea to me is, you know, I said I'm going to look into the kinds of things that I think might be interesting to talk about. Come. January of 2023. And, you know, in California, we're sort of moving in this, this opposite direction compared to some places like Florida or Texas, where, you know, now by legislative mandate, there's a, an ethnic studies requirement for kids in the K-12 system. And that's been carried over to a graduation requirement in the, the system that Mike works in the California State University. And then, of course, the community college is sort of in the middle. Um, but I read this uh, this really interesting sort of local journalism about how that was having an impact on the way that uh, teachers in middle schools and elementary schools in Los Angeles, uh, which is the biggest uh, school district in California, maybe even the biggest school district in the United States, um, you know, we're dealing with this issue. And, and of course, it's a very diverse city with diverse student populations. And at the very end of the article, you know, they were talking about all the different ways that these kids from various backgrounds, whether they were immigrant backgrounds, whether their families had lived in the United States for a long time, were they 
you know, white kids? Were they non-white kids? You know, how were they all grappling with these very difficult things? And, and these are the kinds of things that Elise has alluded to as well. And at the very end of the article, one of the teachers, I think she was like a seventh or eighth grade teacher, you know, was asked to sort of give her overview. And she said, you know, I think people are afraid of these kinds of topics because there's a lot of concern that students will feel guilty. They'll carry around this burden of this responsibility, well, this culpability for something that's, that someone who looked like them or somebody that they are identified with did once upon a time. And they want to, for whatever reason, I mean, there's, there's various reasons why human beings are going to want to escape that, right? And she said, I understand that, you know, there's probably things that I've done in my life, I've wondered, you know, should I feel bad about that? Um, and she had a very interesting take. She said, you know, I don't want these kids to go away feeling bad about themselves or about their classmates. I want them to think about the responsibility they might have. If this is something that concerns them, what is the responsibility they can take away from having this knowledge so that this isn't something that some other generation of kids is going to be burdened with? And so that, that, that emphasis on history is allowing people to have responsibility for the lives they want to have. And, you know, Chris, you've talked about a lot, that a lot this morning. So I, I would say that that's one thing you know, that I think, even if it can kind of come out in a subtle way, hey, you know, look, this is not about you people are bad over there. Um, you know, this is about, hey, these are things that happen. We can't run away from them. But how do we want to live going forward with them and with that knowledge? And, you know, tying it back to even, like Chris is saying, how's the individual, how's an individual deal with these ups and downs in, in their own lives? And I think students can, can connect with that pretty easily. They can say, oh, yeah, this isn't, you know, this isn't just something that's made to put me under a spotlight. So, I don't know, that's one thing that really struck me as we were getting ready for this, and, and your question seemed to tie into that, so I wanted to share that. I actually didn't mean to put that up there. I was just thinking about this quote. So, but, but it's Kim Wagner, uh, that last line, we are not responsible for the past, but we're responsible for what we choose to remember and what we choose to forget, I think speaks pretty well to this, this issue. Um, we have time for maybe one more? Yeah, sure, why not? One more question. Anybody? No, question back. Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. It's, well, it's funny, you kind of uh, arrived at what I was going to ask about, um, but as far as like on a granular level, getting down to personal stories or individualized versions or narratives of, of history. Um, I was just curious if, if, if anybody else had experience with that or if you, ha if, if you had suggestions on, um, so I'm a high school uh, modern world history teacher mm -hmm. in Tennessee. Um, and uh, yeah, just I guess on that topic of, of uh, specific narratives, uh, it's funny, I was in a, uh, attended a session yesterday uh, Professor Catherine Alexander Godfrey, who gave uh, her, read her paper, and it was from, it was House of Trade, Mestizo Children, Merchant Networks, and 16th Century Empire Building in Early Modern Columbia. And she told it through the perspective of two children who were um, sent back and forth between uh, Columbia. Anyways, and it was, it was one of the more effective uh, talks I've heard here. Mm -hmm. And so I've just been thinking about that. I, I do a similar thing in my world history survey, although not so much with individuals, but with location. Uh, you know, world history, you get lost and just zipping around the world. And so um, 
we focus on cities. So I do the, I do the world systems analysis and yada 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 trade, but then we zoom in on what's going on in Shanghai over these years, and what does the world look like from sitting on the boot, or uh, what does the world look like? What does the world system look like from Potosi? Mm. Uh, Potosi. Potosi. Uh, yeah. Forgive my pronunciation. <laughs> uh, or uh, my neck was uh, Malacca. Um, and um, here's, here's just a, a place that really doesn't have much to offer, Malacca, other than it controls these key waterways. And you can see how local individuals interact <coughs> with these global processes. Um, so that, that, that's one approach to it. Um, I think maybe for US history, individuals might be uh, I, did, I did a landscapes in US history you know the dust bowl uh, mm. the Mississippi Delta was where you're getting these intersections of race and culture music and that kind of thing and and that is what gets us around that straitjacket that narrative survey straitjacket and makes it more intimate more local excuse me more local more personal um, I, I have liked to focus recently on, on anti-western thinkers um, there's so many interesting individuals out there who are writing these really profound critiques of, of westernization, um, but often get relegated to being, you know, referred to as traditionalists or, or conservatives, something like that. And so they're kind of standing in the way of, of progress or modernization. There's an um, Urdu language poet from kind of late 19th, early 20th century India named Akbar Ilahabadi. Who was actually worked within the British Imperial Administration, but was also this really fierce critic of, of, uh, of the British and, and kind of Westernization. And he has you can find his poems translated. I think um, JSTOR has has a, a collection of them, and they're they're funny and they're short and they're easily readable for students, um, and they're just really profound critiques of 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 the West. I'll just read one just because I have it in my notes here. He says. You never cease proclaiming that Islam spread by the sword. You have not deigned to tell us what it is the gun has spread. So that was his. Um, any any other thoughts on? I agree with um, everyone else on the panel with making it personal. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think about for U.S. history is um, because we are new as a country, mm. um, some of the people in the room that have created the trauma are still in the room with us. out of time. Thank you so much, everybody, uh, for taking part in this.
if you haven't noticed yet, it's History Against the Grain is the podcast. You can subscribe, listen, review, rate, all the things people like to say. If you all listen to this episode, it'll double our numbers. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there it is. HA23 in the bag. We'll be back to talk to you all soon enough. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one closing your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening.